the importance of vision and prayer. The importance of vision and prayer. It was in 1950 that a man by the name of Bob Pierce uh, had an experience that created a huge firestorm in his heart. He was in third world Asia, and uh, uh, there were many children who were orphaned by the Korean War. And these children were lined up uh, in a food line, uh, but many of them died in the food line because there was simply not enough food for these children at the front of the lines. And this created a huge holy discontent in the life of Bob Pierce. And so when he headed back into the USA, he had these young children etched in his, in his mind and heart, and he thought to himself, there's something we must do about this. And so he gathered all of his affluent business friends and partners together in a meeting room in Los Angeles, California. And while he gathered them there, Pierce vehemently declared, if it kills me, we're going to do something about these children who are dying in the food line. And so in the end, his persistence paid off. In fact, on one overseas visit, he had given all the money he had in his pocket to a little girl uh, named White Jade who came from a poor Asian family who was beaten and disowned after announcing she had uh, become a Christian. And so his uh, few dollars that, she, that he gave this little girl uh, helped provide food, clothing, schooling, knowing that one thing she needed more than anything else was a hope for a future for her life. And this small to send her money every month from that moment on, and this small seemingly spur-of-the-moment gesture served as a catalyst for what would become World Vision Organization. This elaborate child sponsorship program that has literally helped hundreds of thousands of children in countries across the world. But it all started with this experience, this unpleasant experience for Bob Pierce to see these children literally die in a food line. Changed his life and the trajectory of his life from that day forward. And God used that horrific moment to speak vision in a man named Bob Pierce, who later became the founder of World Vision, an organization that has done so much good all over the world. Where does vision start? I wonder if that's where many times vision starts. It's when God exposes something to us that causes there to be a firestorm in our own heart to say that this injustice must stop. And perhaps he has put a vision that started with a burden, with a holy discontent, to the point that he wants you to do something about it. You see, that day Bob could have easily said, well, it's not my problem. It's not my problem that this is happening to these poor orphan children. Somebody else will worry about it. No, God caused that firestorm, that burden to come into his life because he was choosing him to do something about it 
for the rest of his life. The similar thing happened to a man in the Old Testament named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is one of my favorite leaders of the Old Testament. And similarly to uh, holy Nehemiah also experienced a firestorm in his heart, a holy discontent, a burden that God was placing on his heart to do something about. And so if you have your Bibles, go to Nehemiah 1 and 2. And if there's one book in the Bible that I think even as a leadership team, you might want to, even as a church, you might want to consider walking through, it's the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I'm going to read chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. And, and the Word of God is the most important part of anything we do here today. And so we must not just kind of um, skim through this. This is the most important words that are spoken from this podium today, is the Word of the Lord. And so I, I want you to get the gist of what's happening here. So I'm going to read chapter 1 and, and the verse 8 verses of chapter 2. But follow along and let the Holy Spirit show you and speak to you through the word of the Lord today, okay? So Nehemiah is found right after the book of Ezra, um, right before the book of Esther. And so, verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he says to his brother, how's it going there in Jerusalem? Because he was in uh, the citadel of Susa, which was another region. And they said to me these words, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and they are in disgrace. You see, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Well, when I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. When he heard the news that the, the walls of Jerusalem were, 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 were in ruins and that the people were in disgrace, it bothered him to the core of his being. And he said to the Lord, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before, before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands. Give your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, as you will see in just a few moments. 
So his job is really important. He's the one who makes sure that nobody's poisoned the king's drink or food. And it's a prestigious place. It's a lifestyle of living in the palace. He has a great job. People would be lined up to be a cupbearer. I mean, there's the downside in case you drink something that's poisoned. But he also does enjoy a very uh, posh kind of lifestyle. But in the meantime, the Lord has asked him or has shown him the ruins of the walls in Jerusalem. But he's living in the citadel in Susa as the cupbearer. So what does he do next? It says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. So I'm not sure what happened in that moment. The king says, what, are you, what, what, what can I do for you? If, if Nehemiah just kind of looked away and says, oh, God, you need to help me right now, what I need to say. We don't know. But soon after, he cries out to God of heaven and, and, and answered the king, if it pleases the king and, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you be back? It pleases the king to send me, so I set a time. So in many ways, he's asking, I have letters of absence. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will re uh, occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. I want to stop there. A lot of things are happening in this text. The first critical question of three critical questions I want to ask you as leaders today. The first one is this. Do we care? Do we care? Notice in verses 3 and 4, Nehemiah says, They said to me, those who survived the exiles and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. It bothered him. It burdened him. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah's vision didn't begin as a vision. It began as a concern, as a burden, a burden for his nation and a burden for its people. You see, once we accept Jesus in our lives as our Lord and Savior, everything changes. 
We no longer live our lives for ourselves, but we live our lives for the glory of God. We live our lives for the expansion of the kingdom of God. So the question I have for us is, does our heart break for the things that break the heart of God? Because Nehemiah could have easily said, well, it's not my problem that the walls are broken down. In fact, history tells us that those walls were broken down and left in ruin for 150 years without nobody caring. Until Nehemiah heard about the situation. And for the first time, somebody cared enough to weep over the circumstance, to be burdened by the concern. Sometimes we struggle with being concerned with the things that concern the heart of God because maybe we struggle with apathy. We can be apathetic towards engaging in what God would want us to engage in. What is it? Store lack of concern. Sometimes we struggle with slothfulness, which is one of the deadly sins the Old Testament teaches us about, which is reluctance to work or to make any effort. Peter Kreeft, well-known author, said this, the workaholic may be guilty as the couch potato because, the, because their constant activity keeps them from attending to the most important things and people in life. What are the most important things that matter the most? Sometimes we can be so busy and apathetic for things that aren't of any eternal significance. Apathy, sloth, and indifference may be the greatest threat to the advancement of the North American church of today. We're just too busy and preoccupied with our own selves and own little worlds that the very things that God is trying to burden us with or the things that concern God, we just kind of push away. Instead, Nehemiah heard the need. The walls and the gates of Jerusalem were left in ruins decade after decade. And no one cared enough to do something about it. Nehemiah chose to care enough to pray. He chose to care enough to do something about it, rather than leaving it to someone else to worry about. Similar to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. When it says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Friends, you live in the city of Toronto. Your church is located in North York. The needs of this community are massive. There are so many injustices, so many things, so many people who are walking without Jesus. And God has positioned you right here because he wants to put a burden in your heart, a concern that so grips you that it causes you to weep and to pray and to cry out to God because you care enough to do something about it. The greatest visions are started sometimes with a simple concern, an injustice, something that has gone wrong that needs to be made right. The question is, do we care? Do we care enough to pray? Do we care enough to weep over the needs of our city? Or are we apathetic? Or are we slothful or indifferent? Nehemiah cared. He wasn't going to let this report from his brother just to kind of fall on deaf ears. 
even though he had it all. He was fine. He was a cupbearer. He was living a lavish lifestyle. He had his career path focused. He could have easily said, you know, that's not my business. I don't even, I'm not even in Jerusalem. Instead, it bothered him. It created a firestorm in his heart. The second question is, do we confess? Do we confess? You see, when things are difficult and troublesome, we can easily be tempted to blame someone else for the predicament. The reason why our city is this way is because the government has made these decisions. It's because the policies that are in place. It's because our teachers or the school system or because of this or that. Very easy in this generation. They're just always on their iPads and they're never focused. It's very easy. And maybe many of that is partially true. But perhaps we need to own our own piece of the puzzle. And that's what Nehemiah does. If there's a trouble at work, employees blame their bosses and the bosses blame their employees. In our marriages, the husband blames the wife and the wife blames the husband. With our children, parents blame the children and children blame the parents. In our country, citizens blame politicians, politicians blame each other. In our churches, congregants blame their pastors and pastors blame their congregants. It's always easy to play armchair quarterback than it is to get in the game and do something that will help the situation. Rather than being part of the problem, be part of the solution. Furthermore, own your part of contributing to the problem. What is it that you can own about the problem? Notice Nehemiah, he doesn't blame everybody else for the ruins of, of the walls of Jerusalem. He says in verse 6 and 7, I confess the sins... We Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So it starts with first he cared about this burden that God was placing. And rather than passing the buck as to why the walls were in ruins, the first thing he did was confess in his own heart. What have I missed? What, have my, what has my family missed in all of this story? And perhaps the first question we need to ask ourselves when we're challenged by others is, are they right? Perhaps they're right in what they're assessing in, this, in, in, the, in the constructive criticism that they're giving me. Perhaps from a spiritual standpoint, we must always check our own hearts because our hearts can easily be swayed in the wrong direction. This is why the Apostle Paul challenges the church in Corinth with these words in chapter 13, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's talking about the church of Corinth. He's talking to believers. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Wow. So examination is something that we all need to implement in our lives what part of the problem do we need to own? Do we need to confess? Don't buy into the cultural axiom that says, follow your heart. This is not a biblical principle. Instead, and beyond curious us, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, theft false testimony, slander. 
the truth is no one lies to us more than our own hearts. And we live in a world that's always passing the fault or the buck to somebody else as to why we're in the predicament we're in. Nehemiah pushes against that and moves counterculture and owns his own part of the situation in Jerusalem. Nehemiah doesn't only confess his and the Israelites' shortcomings, but he also confesses and acknowledges and declares how, God, how great God is, even though God's people have been faithless. He says in verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So although we at times are broken, although we can get distracted and easily deceived, our God is great and his grace is sufficient. Our God chooses us to be his ambassadors. What a privilege and what a responsibility, isn't it? That as leaders, he leaves us to continue his ministry on earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Vision is birthed sometimes through the burdens that God places on your heart. He allows you to experience things because he wants to break your heart for the things that break his heart to the point where you do something about it. So question one, do we care enough? Question two, do we confess? Do we own our part of the problem? Or are we simply an armchair quarterback who blames everybody else for our predicament? Finally, the third question is, do we connect? Do we engage in the solution of the problem? Do we commit ourselves to being part of the solution? Nehemiah didn't just sympathize. He didn't just feel sorry for the city of Jerusalem and the people of God. No, he engaged the problem. He connected himself to the need. He engaged and did something about it. Notice, it took him approximately four months before he actually connected himself to God, God's calling and his vision. You see, it started in the month of Kislev, but then it was in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes where he finally spoke up. And if you, scholars say that there was uh, uh, four months between those things. So what, it was four months after he had heard of the walls of Jerusalem. He prayed and he fasted and he wept over that holy discontent for four months before he started to speak vision and ask for things of King Artaxerxes. Notice, this is important because seasons of prayer and fasting are critical in fulfilling any vision that God places in your church and places in your heart. Prayer before acting on a prompting is critical. In fact, prayer is not just critical before commencing. It is critical throughout the whole process of seeing a vision become a reality. And you'll see this whole thread of prayer right through the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 13, so on. It's prayer, prayer, prayer. All the way through the fulfillment of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So it starts there. It's there in the middle. And it ends there. It's all bathed in prayer. King Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This is unlike you. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah right there responded, I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Friends, 
If your vision doesn't scare you, you're not dreaming big enough. If there isn't part of you that's risking putting things on the line, then you're not dreaming dreams that are big enough. You need to dream dreams where God will need to intervene to make certain things happen. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said, well, okay, so what is it that you want from me? Why are you telling me this, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, then I pray to the God of heaven. In that moment of fear and, and that question that the king asked, he prays. Again, we don't know how exactly that all worked. But he cried out to God, and then he's, after he prayed, he says to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Let me leave my post as cupbearer, so that I can go to Jerusalem and help rebuild these walls. Why was he so afraid then? When I read this for the first time, I thought, what? What is he so afraid of? And then I started to learn something. The king himself, King Artaxerxes, had stopped the Jewish efforts of rebuilding the walls years later in Ezra chapter 4. This king was known to putting a halt to the rebuilding of the walls. No wonder Nehemiah was afraid. Not only is he in the presence of the king, not only is he the cupbearer of the king, not only is he asking for a leave of absence, but he's asking the man who has shown in his history that he's not for the rebuilding of the wall. No wonder he's afraid. And yet, he could have easily thought, there's no way I can even mention it to this king because he's known for stopping such a, a work. So why even bother asking? It'll never happen. It'll never work. This guy is the king. I'm just a cupbearer. God, maybe you've knocked on the wrong heart. There's somebody else. He could have come up with all kinds of excuses as to not to be the one who would be catalytic in the rebuilding of the walls. And yet, he doesn't allow the circumstance and the personalities, i.e. the king, to get in the way of what God was burdening him for. And because he was obedient, God did something wonderful. You see, those who are the boldest for God have the greatest need to be in prayer. I think part of the reason why we don't pray is because we're not bold. We're not dreaming for things that are, are bold and courageous. And so we don't have a need for prayer. Nehemiah needed to pray because the odds were stacked against him in making this dream a reality. Nehemiah went on further to ask the king. You see his, his obedience and his boldness starts growing in this conversation. Not only does he ask for the leave of absence, but then he asks for a letter. He says, so that, so that as I travel through the different regions and there's different kings in different regions, that if, if King Artaxerxes writes me a letter that I would have safe travels so me that he would kill me on the way, that would be great. Great. So King Artaxerxes can you write me that letter that will give me safe passage? And King Artaxerxes said yes. So now he's given him the, 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 the leave of absence. He's given him a letter, 
to, to, for safe travels. And he doesn't stop there. Then he says, oh, by the way, King Artaxerxes, do you mind writing me a letter to be addressed to the official in that other place where they have lots of lumber and timber? Because I'm going to need supplies to build the wall. And so do you mind doing that? I mean, in that moment, you could have easily thought, you know, just be quiet, man. He's already given you two yeses. Take it and go. He doesn't stop. He realizes, I don't just need to get there, but I need the supplies to rebuild it. So, hey, King Artaxerxes, do you mind writing me another, another letter that then gets me all the supplies? Sure. Wow. Wow. The Lord answered Nehemiah's prayer. And verse 8 says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. It's really important. Not because of his talent. Not because he was a very persuasive and dynamic leader. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. This church, God's hand is on your church. He hasn't called you to just pass time. He's called you for a specific reason. To accomplish specific tasks. To accomplish a mission, a vision. Don't settle for mediocrity. But take a step of faith and boldness and start dreaming the kind of dreams that somewhere along the way God's going to have to come through because his hand is upon you. Be bold enough to ask for things, not for selfish reasons, but for kingdom reasons, for kingdom purposes. It's going to take, it's going to make you feel afraid. It's going to mean some risks. It's going to mean taking some steps that you've never taken before. But if you are called to take those steps, he who has ordered your every step will be your provider every step of the way. He will make the king Artaxerxes of the land give you everything you need to accomplish your kingdom purpose. So, do we care? Do we confess? And will we engage and connect with the mission that God has called us to accomplish? May we never forget that our success are always because of the gracious hand of God. Back to my original story of Bob Pierce. Because of God's gracious hand, world vision has accomplished much. And just based on 2017 statistics, through World Vision's history since the inception in 1950, where Bob Pierce experienced what he experienced at the front of that food line, since then, 4 million people have gained access to clean water. 3 million-plus children have been sponsored. 10.5 million children are reached with education programs and services. 170 emergency responses assisting about 3.9 million people in 56 countries have been ministered to. 20 million plus pregnant, pregnant women and young children were protected from malaria by the distribution of insecticide-treated mosquito nets. 
129,000 plus teachers have been trained. 1.2 million plus microloans were borrowed by individuals in these third world countries. Because of God's gracious hand. Because God's hand was upon a man named Bob Pierce. Who allowed God to mess him up. And put a firestorm in his heart. So much so that it, it caused him to go back to California and get some other leaders around him. And so that he can share what God was doing in him. And it started there. And now look at the impact that it's had. Because of God's gracious hand, you are where you are today. But this is only the beginning. I believe God has a great purpose for this church. I really do. And if you allow yourself to be burdened by the things that burden our God, and you pray, and you fast, and you cry out to Him, and you confess your own deficiencies and your own part of the problem, and then you take steps of faith, God will use you to do things you would have never thought or imagined.